This is Seeds for Success, a show where we have a good yarn about ag life with producers who are having a go. On the show, you'll hear from farmers in New South Wales who are out there battling the elements, making tough calls and getting the job done. You'll get a laugh out of some of their stories and also pick up some know-how along the way. I'm your host, Narrowly Brennan. Today, we're catching up with Kim and Ned Williams. This father and son team are based just north of Dubbo on their third generation property, Poldale. Together, Kim, Ned and their families run a shorthorn cattle stud, Poldale, and have based their pasture system around tropical pastures and irrigated lucerne, utilising local effluent. In this episode, you'll hear Kim talk about the challenges that they've faced while introducing tropical pasture and improved grazing management to build the health of their poorer soil. And as Ned explains, it's taken a generational effort to transform their land into a more productive and sustainable place for his own children and their future generations. Local Land Services Cropping Officer Tim Bartimote had a good look around the farm with Kim and Ned before settling down at the house for this chat. Hello everyone, we're here out just outside of Dubbo. I'm here with father and son Kim and Ned. Can you, Kim, tell us a bit about Poldale and where we are and what you do here? My father took this place up when he came out of the army. He was about 24, 25, so we've been here 75 to 80 years. We've since developed the place. It was rather a rough rock block. We range, the soil types range from basalt black to basalt red right through to Ironstone country. But through management and that sort of thing, we've managed to utilise the poorer countries and get them up to speed with the better country. I'm the second generation here. Ned's the third generation. There's roughly a bit over 2,000 acres on this place. And we've since developed other country out west. We've got a few other blocks out there that we run in conjunction with this block. And so, Ned, can you tell me how far out of town are you and what's it like growing up working at this place? Firstly, thanks for having us on board. And it's really good to see you guys come out and do this sort of thing. It's, I think it's really important for the industry and for farmers and that to talk. So we're Poldale Shorthorns. We're located 15 kilometres north of Dubbo. It's really good, really location close to town. We're very lucky in that aspect. From here, we run the um, Shorthorn Stud, pasture improvement, now centre pivot irrigation. And that's just generally what we operate here at Poldale. Can you give the audience a bit of information about what it was like when you first started? In that time when Dad took over, there wasn't a lot of money around and the country wasn't developed then. Dad used to have uh, sheep mainly and only a few head of cattle. The fences were a bit ordinary, the country wasn't improved and we did have half this block, roughly 1,200 acres of regrowth scrub on it. So I suppose when I came along, I helped Dad develop the place. There's the fences, we put in a couple of bores. We've got either a trough or a dam in each paddock. Most paddocks are around 40 to 50 acres. We don't like set grazing. All this has come in probably in the last 30 years with technology, with advice from people and following people that you think that have achieved things. We've created what we consider a pretty handy farm here. We've gone into tropicals. A lot of the tropicals suit this sort of ground and they will respond very quick on very low rainfall, which is good because our rainfall is about 22, 23 inches a year usually, but it can vary 35 right down to about 12. 
that's how the farm started off. But as it is now, we've limed quite a bit, we've top-dressed a bit, fair bit too, and it's made a hell of a difference. And we've probably increased our stocking rate in the last 30 years threefold, I think, which is very beneficial to us, which entitles us to put more back into the land and develop even further. But probably this farm alone, Poldale, has probably developed nearly as far as it can go now. You talked about how you process is you do a few years of this and then you might move into sowing down this and that's could you just run us through what your process here is at Poldale to get your pastures to where they are today when mum and dad started doing the pastures you'd sow for a bit your pastures would be established and then they'd sort of get tired and then you may have a big strike and natives come along and choke a few out as the years have gone by and we've increased the quality of the soil through proper management, like having deeper contours to hold the water onto your property, not running it off, decreasing salinity, keeping your soil wetter for longer and allowing your country to have better coverage, that's increased a lot of microbial growth, a lot of carbon in your soil. It's also increased a lot of fertility in your soil. Once those things are happening, and this is over a period, as Dad said, uh, 40 years, once those processes go along, we've found that you get a better response from your soil. And once you get that better response, you find that do a lot better. The stands that you do sow stay around for longer. And once they seed down at it, you find that when you sow a paddock, a corner of it may be coming up really good strike and it's quite thin everywhere else, but eventually that fills and spreads in. Soil fertility and soil structure lends itself to the pastures you've sown. So in going on that though, with the slow process going forward of making sure that we're doing the right thing with the water or inducing a salinity, we've found that a lot of the, some of the paddocks that we want to establish as a pasture, we work up, we put a crop of oats in to break up the soil a bit. We graze off, run stock on it, cut it for hay. And then after we do that, we work it up again. And when we get a series of weeks of wetter weather, that had lend itself to growing those introduced pastures. We sow and we have done that through use of a band seeder behind a plough, which again tills the soil, makes it quite fine to ensure that you can get seed to soil contact because they are quite small seeds. And one mistake we did do before was we did plant it too deep. And of course it doesn't come up and you run into costs of fuel and doing it and your cost of seed. So that there are other big learning curves too that you've got to make sure that when you put it out, you do it right. And after doing that and you get the weeks of weather, you get a good strike. Generally you don't see it for a bit, but as the weeks and months ensue after you've gone to the effort of planting it, you do see them come up, you do see them establish and you do see them fill in. But we've only been able to do that through what's happened before through proper water management through proper stock management that's a big one um, as dad mentioned before on the rotational grazing and recognizing that when you do have the pastures established and you let them seed down it's important you do that and that's a bit about why it's taken such a long time because when you put a paddock up for um, pasture improvement you're essentially locking that paddock up and if you put four or five paddocks in you're basically plowing yourself into a drought so you're not able to run what you need to make a living in the meantime. So it is a balancing act. And when your soil types and variations happen between paddock to paddock, as you've seen today, it is a big balancing act because some paddocks may need to be locked up for longer. Others may need more rain. Others may not need more rain. Others may even be even be too wet. You can't get the machinery across. So there's a lot of other management things you've got to be aware of too. And We've been very lucky because mum and dad have been here so long and they've worked a lot of soil, they've put a lot of crops in. And the knowledge of the area is quite extensive, so we've been able to do that through experience, but it's again getting experience by doing. So it sounds like you've got a few different management techniques that you've employed that have all enabled you to 
get to where you are today by grazing right, getting your species selection that suits your dirt, I guess, your land. And all these things kind of add together to enable a successful outcome where a couple of families can live off a block that's not too far out of Dubbo, which is quite interesting, quite cool, I think. You've also got a number of different enterprises running at the same time, don't you? Because we mentioned before, this is a shorthorn stud. How did you get into shorthorns, Kim? What's the allure there? Are they just the best thing? Well, probably we're biased. We like shorthorns a lot. Shorthorns, I'm the third generation. My grandfather, I think he brought a bull out from England. This would have to be, geez, 80, 90 years ago. I don't know the exact date, but we went on from there. I suppose I've grown up with shorthorns. I know the capabilities, the capacity and their production. We like the cattle. We've tried other breeds and we've always come back to shorthorns. We do trade quite a bit. We find it very hard to buy shorthorns and the other breeds suit sometimes and sometimes they don't. We've been here, we've had the shorthorn stud going nearly 60 years, so I suppose we've learnt a lot from that. Ned now is coming up to the fourth generation and his sons will be the fifth. We're not hanging on to the shorthorns just because we do generally like the breed. They're very functional cattle and there's quite a bit of money in them if you do it right. So Kim, you've just said that you incorporate a lot of tropicals as part of your pasture improvement and your management. How do you compensate for the fact that you may not have as much winter feed available? With tropicals, there's usually only about two and a half months with a normal rainfall that you don't get growth. We get growth here right up till May, till the savage frosts come in. And as I said earlier, we put a lot of legumes on it. So a lot of legumes will germinate April, May. If you've got the the tropicals will dry right off. In a year that's a bit harsh, all we do is introduce urea, lime and molasses salt blocks and they will utilise that dry feed from the tropicals through the winter. And on a normal to good year, not only will they eat that, but they also start eating the legumes that have come up. Now, a lot of legumes don't flourish a lot till spring, but there's usually enough there combined with the dry tropicals to get them through. We don't have that feed gap unless it's an extraordinary dry year. And remember, additives such as salt, urea molasses will help them digest that and they will actually eat it. Now, sure enough, if your cattle this year alone, we've got a hell of a lot of hay because we had two good years, we'll give out hay through the winter as a feed gap, but usually you don't have to do that if you haven't overstocked. And that goes back to how you stock your paddocks too, because if you decrease that ground cover, like digit, if you, as you've seen today, digit grass, there's a hell of a lot of bulk there. And it's not just bulk up high, it's bulk down low. And all that will turn into dry feed in the feed deficit gap in winter. So if you look after that and don't flog it down too much, you've got a lot of dry feed there too, which can last through that period of time. The probably big trick with that too, we've known here the tropicals will respond on five mil of rain and if you get 12 to 15 mil in the spring, we find here that things start to grow in the last week of August here. So you hit September and on a normal year, you've usually got that shoot, which doesn't take much rain to get the shoot. That's right. And with that grass, but once that shoot comes through, now we find our cows, they come along and eat the butt and they get a mouthful of dry feed as well as the shoot. So they're filling up their stomach or four stomachs are getting full. We find they do a lot better on that as well, which is really interesting. Yeah, I just wanted to touch on trading a little bit because we often get a few listeners quite interested in how people go about it. Can you give an example of one of your biggest wins and then follow it up with one of your biggest losses? 
one of our biggest wins is when we bought steers for two hundred dollars and we turned around and sold them for nearly two thousand. That's one instance. <laughs> Some of our losses are we haven't actually lost money; we've broken even, and I suppose we've paid twelve hundred for steers. The market hasn't been successful, and we've only got twelve hundred back after keeping them six or eight months. But what we try to do is buy steers, trade steers, keep them for roughly 10 to 12 months, and if we can't double our money, at least we don't go in there. We don't trade them. Now, a lot of people trade females. They buy red taggers and this sort of thing. Well, that may suit them, but it doesn't suit us because they buy red taggers, carve them down and sell them. Sure, they'll make a thousand, $1,200 on them, but we're a breeding, and we don't like bringing too many strange females on for disease factors and that sort of thing. And you're usually buying other people's problems when you do that. So we often trade steers. Now, unfortunately, well, after the drought has taught people how to trade. Now, trading now is very hard because where you're buying steers for $800, $850, now you're paying $1,800, $2,000 for the same steers. We've just purchased 140 heifers. We're going to slowly swing back into breeding instead of trading because I think now that trading is going to be quite difficult and there's not at that 100% margin that we like in trading at the moment. So we're going to breed more focus on breeding cattle. It'll take a year or two to get into that, but we'll just slowly wind back our steer trading and slowly increase our breeding program. So really too many people are clued into what you guys have been up to for a little while and you reckon now that going's not so good, move on to something else. The game's still good, but it's harder. One slip and you're gone, because if you're paying $2,200 for a steer and then selling that steer in six months' time for $2,700, that's fine. Take your expenses out of it, the pasture they eat, your management. It comes right back, your profit margin. And as I said before, I think you're better off to do something with less risk. How about you, Ned? Can you add anything on some of the trading experience? Not really. That's pretty much what we're aiming to do, not only as a business, but as a family too, because we are very family orientated. We've got to always keep that in the back of our minds because everyone loves to work. You love to put in big hours, but you've got to be mindful of the other things you can't let them slip by either, particularly with young ones around. You've got to do what you like. And as Stubman, I suppose we've been looking at similar pictures and a lot of information and experience has been passed down. So we're using that as much as we can too. But in the way of trading, that's, that's basically what we're aiming for as a family, just to make sure that everything we're doing is fitting with our physiology of grass farming, of improving our um, soils and making sure that we've achieved there allows us to do what we like and we can trade the way we want to and growing them out and getting a bigger return at the end, practically earning 100, 150% on what you've originally paid because our country allows us to do that in the way we manage. And there's always a risk there. You want to go bigger, you want to go bigger, but you can grow broke too and you've got to be wary of that and you put everything under too much strain. So it's about recognising not only where your limits are but what you also is on the horizon too because there could be another drought, there could be another big wet time and they affect things in different ways. So you just got to be switched on and move with the season and move with the market and do what suits you at the time. I was given advice years ago when we first went out to Ningen. Um, an old bloke said to me there, and it's pretty true, he said, in this country, they call some of this country the salad bowl country, when it rains and then it rains again, Things are looking good, you're heading into the autumn and it rains again. He said, you start to buy. He said, you can buy, buy, buy. 
you keep buying, you keep buying, but then when the season starts to turn, you miss that shower, you miss that change coming through. Feed's starting to get a little bit iffy. You're worried about summer feed because a lot of people go broke on buying on summer feed. You start to sell. And if you can fluctuate, have a narrow-minded approach of there, my cattle, I have to keep them. If you can fluctuate with the seasons, you'll find trading and breeding a lot easier because you'll always keep your grass. And remember that stock are only a byproduct of your pastures. So irrigation using effluent has popped up a couple of times in our conversation so far. Can you explain, Kim, what that is? probably goes back to 30 years ago when the Rand government was in power. I think there was a lot of blue-green algae going there in the river system and the New South Wales government approached Dubbo, Wagga and Tamworth to utilise their effluent, which is just wastewater from toilet management, from road runoff and that sort of thing. And they set up these big programs where they put it into ponds and then they filtrate it, get the old biosolids out of it and any bacteria and that sort of thing. And the council at that stage put out a tender. I think five or six people tended for this water. We won the tender, probably because of location. We were right beside the Dubbo City Council effluent farm and we won that water or won the right to use it. Therefore, we put in a pivot that's a kilometre across. It's a round pivot by a one centre pivot. And we've decided to grow loosen on that, mainly at the time we wanted to drought-proof this property because we'd seen dust storms and droughts go through. I think one in five years is very dry, so we wanted to drought-proof the place for our stock management. And that is why we became involved in it. Since then, we've grown loosen on it and we found it very successful. Now, the effluent itself, the water that comes through, has been treated properly, as Ned will go on with that, and that's virtually what we've done. It's been a 20-year-long process. We've learned a hell of a lot along the way. It's been really quite good for us, as Dad mentioned before, it's drought-proofed us, and that's allowed us to expand our stud operation, um, really focus and hone in on what we want to do. But a bit more about the effluent. The effluent is basically wastewater from Dubbo, it's put through a multi-pond treatment process, which basically means it's moved into a large settling pond where the first round of sediment moves and falls down. It's let there to sit. Then it is moved to a second pond where more sediment continues to filter down into the bottom of the pond. And from there, it's run through a treatment process where it's been hit with ultraviolet light, which kills about 99% of the bugs and bacteria in the water. And an interesting fact is, is when the effluent plant was first put in, there's a photo of in the newspaper of our, a mayor at the time drinking a glass of the water. It's quite safe. It's one grade below drinkable, of course, through to be with all your incline with all your regulations and everything else. We don't allow any contact with the water at all if we can help it. And if there is, we sanitize ourselves properly just on the off chance that something could happen in regards to state regulations. But yeah, it's been a really big asset to the farm. It's been something that we had to do a lot of homework on. It was a long process working through. But it was quite exciting too because it really feather in the cap for us because we've been aiming for sustainable farming through our land practices as we talked about before. And with our soil improvement programs and utilising sewage effluent wastewater from Dubbo and that really is giving us a green footprint for Poldale and that's an exciting thing to see and it has gotten a lot of recognition from Dubbo City Council because they use their effluent on their property as well. Longer than two decades, it was established before we used the centre pivot. So it's been quite an exciting thing, not only for us but for council too and it's good to see that farming can utilise sustainable practices to be productive. So that's really interesting to see how you've utilised a local resource like that. 
So what do you do with that water on your place? When we first got the pivot some 20 years ago, we did grow sorghum and millet, and we also grew hybrid ryegrass. Now, these were cut for hay because grazing is not preferred on effluent, but we did find that they weren't as productive. The most productive crop is growing lucerne for chaffing quality. This is a little bit more intense. You've got to put a little bit more fertiliser on it. Ground is a bit hard being off the river. Uh, we haven't got alluvial flats on this place at all. A lot of its ironstone goes into red and black basalt, which is a bit porous. But we've found that just growing loose and rotational for chaffing is the best way. Now, we do not use any of that hay for our own stock because we like this pivot to stand alone, a separate income. We use contractors because of the sheer workload. Sometimes we can have four balers up there. Being off the river is a bit of a problem with evaporation. We get very hot winds and we can get up to 12 mil of evaporation in a day, especially a hot day, which is very hard to replace. So we do run in a bit of a trouble because it can take two and a half days, 20, 22 mil for that pivot to get around. And once it's got around, so there are problems with it, but we've managed to overcome a lot of the problems and grow what we want but it's definitely seasonal if you've got a good average year to above average just no trouble to grow loosen but if you've got a dry year average to below average rainfall with tremendous heat it is quite hard to grow it on there but we usually get about five to six cuts a year sometimes we do silage sometimes we don't just depending if we get caught out with the weather we can utilize that silage we can sell that we also sell the hay but we try to keep it a standalone pivot and we don't run stock on it because of the compaction and the weed contamination, and it's not preferred with the rules and regulations of New South Wales that stock enter that pivot zone. So we did go for a bit of a wander. We had a look at the pivot. It was really interesting. But I also heard you talk about, Ned, how you're trying to achieve quality of life and balancing all these different things in the air. You've got the stud cattle, you've got pasture improvement, you've got the pivot irrigated loosen. How do you do it all? It's a good question, and I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's a bit difficult sometimes, but generally, me, mum and dad, we work together as a team, and dad looks after the management side to make sure that we're all heading in the right direction, that things are coming up that I'm not forgetting about. That works really well. I'm doing a lot of the grunt work and all the harder work, the other jobs that mum and dad don't really want to do, and I don't blame them. And It works out well that way, and mum's looking after the stud bulls and maintaining them, making sure they're they're right, they're putting on weight, um, there are no problems arising and making sure that they've still got hay and, and things like that and that they're healthy in the paddock. And between all that, we can find ourselves working most of the day here or most of the day at an Ingen property and then coming back and at night you have an hour or two sleep and then you're straight up to the centre pivot to press hay and you're coordinating the contractors. And there's a bit of a balance there, particularly with two young boys things like just making sure I'm home at night between 6 and 7.30 if I can or making sure I'm there before bed just to make sure that you see the boys and you help mum out too. That's a big thing about it as well because parenting is and family life's a dual job. You've both got to work at it and things like that too, maintaining. But when one of us has to do something, we all work together as a team to help each other. And I think that's a big thing about what we're trying to do here as a family because this isn't just a business. It's not just a job. And there's a lot of improvement, a lot of work that's gone into the property and it really is a legacy. But more than that, it's a lifestyle too and that's what we're trying to fulfil to make sure that it's not only a lifestyle that's good for us and a safe place, a profitable place and a productive place and a sustainable base for the boys, for our next generations, but to make sure it's giving us what we want too. 
whether it's the flexibility for me and myself and Karcha to go and do the things that we want, whatever that may be, whether it's through other interests such as football and other things and Karcha's sport as well, or whether the mum and dad want to invest or take up different opportunities that may arise, even as just spending a weekend away just to go to an area that they haven't been before. So we all work together as a team and address things as they come up. Sometimes things happen and you can't do what you want to do, but that's life. There are worse tragedies in life. But most of the times things work out well. If problems arise, nothing's too hard and everyone works together to a common goal. And we think that's really important too as a family farm because it just comes back to that lifestyle where everything helps us achieve what we want to achieve and do what we want to do without the detriment of being stuck into a set time hours. Well, thanks guys. It's been great to have a bit of a yarn with you here on the kitchen table and really interesting to hear all the things you've got going and to see even all the improvement that you've been able to achieve over these few decades, I guess you could say. 40 years. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources, we've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Narily Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time.